The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're um, starting the Mosaic Covenant today. We've did a three-part series on the Abrahamic Covenant and God's providence. David actually reviewed some of those passages for us this morning as we were looking at James 2. Um, Mosaic Covenant, again, I think I said this last Sunday, I'm... I'm hoping this study will change your view of the Mosaic Covenant. And, and I think the reason so many people have what I think is a skewed view is because we read so much in the New Testament about how the law has been done away with. And it's true. Uh, we're not under the law as uh, Jews and Gentiles in the church today. But we need to look at the Mosaic Covenant as it develops through the Old Testament and then understand what the New Testament writers are saying about it. This is a quote. I'm going to read several quotes today. This is one from a guy named Paul House, and I've recommended this book to several of you. It's called Old Testament Theology, and House just walks from Genesis to Malachi and really does a good job of explaining the biblical theology of each Bible book, but also how later revelation builds on earlier revelation. And this is his comment on the significance of the Mosaic Covenant. There's no way to describe adequately the canonical implications of Exodus 19 through 24. So let me stop right there for just a minute. We think of the law or the Mosaic Covenant oftentimes as just the Ten Commandments. A lot more to it than that. 19 through 24 spells out the full, uh, well, I say the full, it spells out more than just the Ten Commandments. And a lot of the stipulations in 19 through 24 tie back to the Ten Commandments. But the book of Leviticus is also part of the covenant in the sense that it tells us or it told Israel how they were to come to God, how were they to approach Him in worship. Spells out all the different sacrifices that were be, to be made. And then when we get to the Deuteronomic Covenant in a few weeks, we'll see that that's just a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant. The whole book of Deuteronomy is basically a covenant document. No way to describe adequately, adequately the canonical implications of Exodus 19 through 24. Everyone from Moses to Jeremiah to Jesus to Peter and every other biblical writer who has anything to say about covenant morality and relationship to God reflects directly or indirectly upon this passage. Now, certainly some of those authors, especially Peter, reflects on a passage differently than the Old Testament authors are going to. Uh, he's making different points from it. But I don't think that overestimates the significance of this covenant and of this section in Scripture in Exodus 19 through 24. Here's another quote by a guy named William J. Dumbrell, Covenant and Creation, A Theology of Old Testament Covenants. I've not read this book, but I've seen this quote in several places. A correct understanding of these verses, again, Exodus 19 through 24, which summon Israel as a result of Sinai to its vocation is vital. The history of Israel from this point on is in reality merely a commentary upon the degree of fidelity with which Israel adhered to this Sinai-given vocation. In other words, when God brought Israel down to Sinai, he entered into covenant with them, he gave them his law. It's true. The rest of the Old Testament reflects on whether or not they've been obedient to that law and been blessed, or they've disobeyed the law and suffered the curses. So let's think about the setting of the Mosaic Covenant. As the book of Exodus begins, Jacob, whose name has been changed to Israel, and his descendants, a total of 70 persons, 
are in Egypt. And in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant, God greatly multiplies the Israelites, just as he had promised to do, so that the land was filled with them. Let's read Exodus 1, 5 through 7. And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Remember, he had already been brought down, sold into slavery, and eventually uh, rose to prominence in Pharaoh's house. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them, to, to the degree that Egypt became afraid of them. Now, keep in mind that God multiplied his people within the womb of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation on the earth at that time. Uh, but they became so mighty that the Egyptians were afraid that they might get together and, and form a rebellion and, and take over the land. Exodus also records the Israelites' enslavement to the Egyptian, Egyptians, should say, for a period of 430 years. Where have we heard that before? <clears throat> Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Back in uh, Genesis 15, God said that they would be strangers uh, in a foreign land. They would be oppressed by another people uh, for a period of 400 years. But ultimately, God judged the Egyptians and he delivered the Israelites through this series of plagues. Ten plagues in all. Do you remember what we talked about? I think we talked about this at some point, maybe not in, uh, necessarily in connection with the Abrahamic Covenant. What was the purpose of the plagues? And the individual plagues, for example, the fact that God multiplied frogs in the land of Egypt. or uh, It was. In fact... What God was doing was refuting the gods of Egypt through this series of plagues. And it was a tremendous demonstration of his power. And part of the reason for doing that was one, well, mainly to show that uh, the God of Israel had this tremendous power. And it showed his own people that he could do anything. Uh, he was really against the odds in overcoming the Egyptians because they were such a powerful people, if you looked at it strictly from the human perspective. But God was demonstrating his power, and ultimately he brought the people out of the land of Egypt. What was the last plague? Death of the firstborn. Remember, God had told them that uh, you need to slay a lamb, you need to take the blood and put it on the lentil and the doorpost, and if you do that, you're putting faith to work. You're demonstrating that you believe the word of God and that the death angel would pass over your house. But it's going to kill all the others who don't do that, including especially the Egyptians. And that was the last plague. And Pharaoh finally let them go. You know, he had agreed to let them go a couple of times. And he backtracked. And that plague was the one that finally uh, did the trick. The journey from Egypt to Sinai took three months during which time God delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh's army by his parting of the Red Sea, supernaturally provided manna as food and water in a very barren land. I mean, it had to be supernatural provision because there wasn't anything that they could actually live off the land by. So God had to provide for them in that way. And this, he also enabled the Israelites, and again, keep in mind, the Israelites had not fought any wars. They don't have men that are trained for army so, or, and trained for the military. 
So God supernaturally defeats the Amalekites who rose up against them as they were making their way, way down to Sinai. I'm going to show you a map that shows these different points that they traveled by and what God did at each location. Okay, here's the map. They start up in the upper left-hand corner in Goshen. I make a little bit of a correction to the line that was already drawn on this map because it didn't really cross the Red Sea. We don't know exactly where they crossed, but you remember the story. After God had delivered them by that last plague, uh, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh says, you know, get on out of here, and we're going to give you this plunder from the people to help you. And they get out, and Pharaoh thinks about it again. He says, boy, I've messed up. I had all this free slave labor. Uh, I'm going after them. And he sends his army after the Israelites. They come up against the Red Sea. They're pinned against the Red Sea. And what happens? What, what's the Israelites' attitude? They're going to die. You know, God's delivered us through all these great plagues, this tremendous works of power, only to bring us out here to be destroyed by the Egyptian army. Well, what does God do? He had been leading them by the cloud by day and fire by night. Now he moves in behind them so that he's between them and the Egyptian army. And then he parts the Red Sea. I mean, it's just an incredible story. You're talking about 600,000 fighting men, at least double that, from the time you count women and children, somewhere between a million and a half, two million people that are crossing through the Red Sea uh, on dry land. Let's read about this in uh, Exodus 14, beginning in verse 24. <clears throat> Came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Again, they recognize God. They recognize what he was doing. Uh, and their only recourse at this point is to try to get away from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Remember, this comes hard after the ten plagues. Again, a tremendous demonstration of God's power and of his protection for his people. So they continue on their journey on down to Marah, and here uh, another supernatural work in making bitter water sweet. Exodus 15:22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they would not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah, that name means bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. 
So again, on the one hand, you understand that the people are concerned. Hey, we're, walk we're traveling through this desert land. There's very little water, very little to eat. And they go three days without any water, and they're, they're starting to grumble again. I, I, on the one hand, you can understand that. On the other hand, you, you got to think, what's it going to take? I mean, these people have seen such tremendous demonstration of God's love, his protection, his power. But God continues to provide for them. They continue on their journey down to a place called Elim, and there was an oasis there, verse 27. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. They continue from this point down to a city called Rephidim. You see on the map that there's question marks. That's because it's hard to know with precision, if that's where these cities actually were. There's still an awful lot of archaeology that has not yet been uncovered. It'll eventually catch up with the Bible one day, but I don't put a lot of confidence in archaeology because they've proved so often to be wrong initially until uh, archaeology catches up. <clears throat> it's better just go by the Bible. So at the, you remember that the people had... Uh, they, again, were concerned about not having any food to eat. And they're even reflecting on the fact that when they were back in Egypt, they had all kinds of food. You know, they, they seriously talk about wanting to go back to Egypt. God provides quail and manna, and this is going to be the, the first place that he provides the manna. He's going to end up providing that for over a series of 40 years as they make their way from Sinai up to the plains of Moab. But listen to this in Exodus 16, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I've heard the grumbling of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness was... There was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. So again, another supernatural display, another provision by God to care for his people. <clears throat> we also have water that was provided from a rock and victory over the Amalekites. And this is in chapter 17. Beginning of verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile. That's a reference back to the plague, the first plague, turning the Nile to blood. And go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So we have that provision of water, and then we have the provision of deliverance from enemies, beginning in verse 8. 
Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Obviously, there's more going on there than just normal military strength and strategy. It's a supernatural element to the rod of God that Moses is holding up so that they can prevail. All this is background and context for what happens as they come down to Mount Sinai. That's where Moses is going to go up and receive the law, and God is going to enter into his covenant with his people. So just really important to keep all that in mind. Both the plagues that God did uh, against the Egyptians while they were in bondage, and then the supernatural way that he provided for them as they made their way over the course of three months down to Sinai. The Mosaic Covenant was never intended as a means of salvation. I make that point because sometimes that's the charge, sometimes against dispensationalists, but sometimes it's just made that, yeah, salvation in the Old Testament was by keeping the law. Salvation in the New Testament is by grace through faith. It's not the way it is. Uh, there's lots of grace and faith in the Old Testament. There's law in the New Testament, not the Mosaic law, but a different kind of law. But the point here is that there's two kinds of context that make clear that the Mosaic Covenant was not intended as the means by which the people would be saved. The two contexts are the theological context and the redemptive context. Let's look at each one of those. This is another quote from the article I sent to you by Dr. Barrick on the theological context, which is worshiping God at Mount Sinai. Long before the exodus from Egypt, God had revealed to Moses that the nation's experience at Mount Sinai would be primarily an exercise in worship. He said, certainly I'll be with you, and this shall be a sign to you, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought this people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Israel entered the Mosaic Covenant during, through, and for the purpose of worship. At Sinai, the covenant reinforced the necessity of worshiping Yahweh. Unbelievers cannot participate in true worship since they have no relationship to the object of worship, which is God. In other words, God had already uh, set his love on them. He'd already elected them and his people, and he brought them out uh, in order to, to bring them to Sinai to worship. So it wasn't like the law was the means by which they would come to know God. They came to know him through the mighty acts that he had already done. That's the theological context. They, they knew God, and therefore they could worship at Sinai. The redemptive context is deliverance from Egypt. While Israel was still in bondage in Egypt, Yahweh announced that he cared for them and would deliver them. He said, I am concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. God had, and this has become even more clear when we read Exodus 19, 
But God had already made them his people, and he was already their God. The Mosaic Covenant wasn't the means of establishing a relationship with God. It was the means by which they would maintain the relationship that God had already established for them, just like it is for us, right? Uh, we don't keep the law or we don't do good works in order to gain favor with God, in order to be made right with Him. We do good works after we believe and are saved, and, and they flow out of our faith. Same, same in the Old Testament. Yahweh's love was manifested in the way that He brought Israel from Egypt to Sinai, and that's why we went through the events that we did on the map. Here's what God says in Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, that's the plagues and the deliverance of the Red Sea, and how I bore you on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Bore you on the eagle's wings is really a figure, a metaphor, for the way that a, a mother eagle cares for its young and kind of teaches them how to fly, right? It, it keeps them up itself until they're ready to fly for themselves. It kind of trains them in that way. It's, it's really just a picture of care and love, um, both for the little eagles and for Israel. Israel's redemption was occasioned by God's love, mercy, and grace. He redeemed them before he entered the covenant with them at Sinai. Any claim that the covenant needed to be kept in order for someone to be saved from sin denies the theological and redemptive context of the Mosaic Covenant historically. So again, the main point being that God had already made them his people, and the covenant was a means by which they could worship God. They could sh demonstrate that they loved him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength by being obedient to his commands. I want to read one of these references uh, back that, in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9 that expresses that. <clears throat> The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant, right? Because of his covenant commitment to the forefathers. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. <clears throat> All right, so let's talk about the form of the Mosaic Covenant. Remember we talked about the Abrahamic Covenant and the fact that God made this covenant with Abraham in a form that he understood. It was more like a person to person, but we saw the, the same kind of covenants in the Old, script, in the Old Testament scriptures. That's, it, this kind of covenant could be between two individuals, it could be between two families, it could be even between two nations. And there was relative parity when it was made that way. Of course, there's not parity between God and man. Well, with the Mosaic Covenant, uh, it also was in a form that was understood in that day, but different from the Abrahamic Covenant. In the ancient Near East, when a king conquered another people, he would make a covenant or a treaty that would regulate the relationship between himself and the subjects, sometimes referred to as a suzerain-vassal treaty, suzerain being the king, the vassals being the people that he's conquered. And when it took place uh, between a king and conquered people, uh, 
the stipulations, again, were spelled out by the king, but he had a certain obligation to protect and provide for the people, and the people certainly had an obligation to be loyal to him and to obey what the king required. Well, that's the, kind, that's the form of the Mosaic Covenant, so obviously on a much larger scale with the absolute supreme king of the universe and his people, in this case not conquered so much as created by him. Theologians have noted the similarities between these suzerain vassal treaties and the Mosaic Covenant. Now again, we're going to see those in Exodus 19 through 24. We're going to really see them again in the book of Deuteronomy because it's fashioned on this same form. Historical prologue uh, kind of reviews what God has done up to this point. The preamble to the covenant is like an executive summary, if you're familiar with that. You have a big report that a company does. They do an executive summary to summarize what you're going to get in a lot more detail if you read the whole report. Well, the preamble kind of lays out what the, the general theme and commitment required is. We'll look at those verses in just a minute. Then we have the stipulations of the covenant, all the different commands and requirements that the people were to obey. We have a provision for reading that covenant. And then we have blessings and curses. The blessings come as long as you're faithful. You'll get these things. And we looked at those a little bit, uh, I guess it was last week, in Leviticus 26. Levit Leviticus 26 is a summary of the blessings that would come from covenant obedience. It also provides a summary of the curses that will come for covenant treachery or disobedience. Those th same things are spelled out in Deuteronomy 28 as well. Barak says that stipulations were a part of the treaty form employed by several cultures in the ancient Near East, thereby the suzerain could identify himself as the overlord, the one with authority to establish the calendar, ordain boundaries for the land, grant life, or deal out death. And you can see those kind of things showing up in the Mosaic Covenant. <clears throat> so we're obviously not going to try to read all of Exodus 19 through 24 today. I would really encourage you to do that over the next couple of weeks. Sit down and read it through in one sitting. And uh, it'll just help you see what the overall context is for this covenant. Exodus 19, 1 through 4 provides the basis of the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And this is what we've been talking about really all this morning. Let me read those verses. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in the front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. In other words, he's reminding them of what he's done for them and that being the basis of the covenant relationship that he's about to enter into with them. Exodus 5, I'm sorry, yeah, Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6 provides the purpose and function of this relationship between the Lord and Israel. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So let's look at those phrases a little more detail in verses 5 and 6. First, he calls them my own possession. And this refers to the fact that God had chosen Abraham before. He'd made his covenant with him. He'd affirmed it with Isaac and Jacob. And these are now Abraham's descendants. And they're to be the recipient of blessings that were initially promised in the Abrahamic covenant, but spelled out in this Mosaic covenant as well. They, as Matt prayed this morning, were not only to be the recipient of these blessings, but a channel of blessing for all the other nations of the world. He calls them a kingdom of priests. Now, note, that's not a kingdom with priests, although they would be that. They would have priests that mediated between the people and God. This is a kingdom of priests as a nation. The nation of Israel mediated between God and the other nations, the rest of the nations. Not unlike the church does today. We're priests in the sense of representing God and Christ to others. So that's very important. They're, they're a witness nation. Now, they can witness both ways. They can witness when they're obedient and God blesses them and other nations see that and recognize that their God is the true God. And we've already seen some of that. They can also uh, witness by disobedience, and they'll bring punishment. God will bring punishment upon them, and that affirms what's in the covenant as well. They're also to be a holy nation. It's set apart for God's service, separated from anything that would defile her. And of course, we have the, the stipulations that lay out what they were to do to keep themselves clean, to keep themselves separate from the other nations, uh, and obviously they were to be obedient God to God in order to be holy. All right, so what happens after the law is given? And I realize that's a really condensed summary of, of the law, um, and we didn't even read through the stipulations. Uh, we won't do that this morning, but in the remainder of Exodus 19, the people agreed to submit to Yahweh's rule. Verse 8 says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And that's pretty optimistic. It doesn't turn out to be that way, but at least initially, they're agreeable to obey. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. They are commanded to consecrate themselves and prepare for the Lord's appearance on Mount Sinai. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you, that is, believe in Moses forever. Believe in Moses as God's prophet, as his spokesman. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. The people did that. Verse 12, there were boundaries established that the people couldn't cross over on the mountain lest they die. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. God came down to Sinai in the midst of thunder and lightning flashes 
and a thick cloud. It was a theophany, an appearance by God. It was designed to provoke fear, and it did. A holy kind of fear, a right kind of fear for them to understand that the God who had done all that he had done up to this point, this was the one that was coming down on Sinai and giving the law to Moses. Verse 16, it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. So the last thing that we're going to look at this morning, and we've made better time than I thought we would, feel free to answer, ask questions. Uh, you've done well to hold those back now, but uh, if we have questions after we finish today, please don't hesitate. The law is made up of two types of laws, or rather the stipulations is. The covenant is made up of two types of laws. First is what's called commandments, and those are the ones that we're very familiar with, the Ten Commandments, and other direct, explicit, either thou shalts or thou shalt nots. Does anybody know what the second type of law is? Well, ceremonial will be part of the second type. Case law, good. Uh, and there's four broad categories of case law. I'm, I'm drawing these from uh, House's Old Testament theology book as well. First is the law of the altar in verses 23 through 26 of, of Exodus 20, and it prescribes how Yahweh should be worshipped. Secondly are the judgments, and these run from 21 to 2220. Various situations in human relationships characterized by fairness, holiness, justice, and mercy. Again, this is fleshing out, really, the application of the Ten Commandments to all different kinds of situations between people within the nation. Thirdly are the moral commandments and duties in 22 through 23.9, provided a moral standard for the law code. And then finally, the sabbatical times in the festival calendar, rest and worship are to be ingrained into Israel's life on a, on a periodic as well as weekly basis. So all that was part of the law and it was uh, to man's benefit the fest what did the festivals do? There's really a kind of a two-pronged purpose for the festivals. Isaiah. They were to remember. To remember what exactly? Um, how God brought them out of Egypt and held them up while they were journeying to their promised land. Exactly. So that was the, I'm going to call it the spiritual side. I don't know if that's the best way to do it. But it was a remembrance of what God had done in delivering them and sustaining them as he brought them through the wilderness. There was another uh, side to the festivals as well. Harvest. harvest. Uh, recognition of God's provision through rain and growth of the crops. Remember, that was part of the blessing, was that they would have an abundance of crops. And so each one of the festivals had connections to the agricultural cycle. And so you had that twofold purpose in the festivals. Now, again, we can't take all the time that it would take to read 20 through 24, but I really would encourage you to do that just so that you can see the context of the covenant as a whole. Um, we are going to have a couple of more lessons on the Mosaic Covenant, and so we'll pick up our study 
in two weeks. If you have, you still have the article by Barrick on the Mosaic Covenant, I would encourage you to read that again, but really try to read Exodus 19 through 24. The other thing I would encourage you to read on that opening slide had several scriptural references to how later biblical authors reflect back on the Mosaic Covenant. That would be a good exercise, too. You'll have two weeks to do all this. I know it's a lot of homework, but uh, you'll, you'll have two weeks to, to do it. And then you'll come back really loaded for bear when we, get the, when we pick up our study in two weeks. Okay, so are there any questions about anything that I've said this morning about the Mosaic Covenant? It's all crystal clear. I don't think it's hard at this point. Uh, I just, I just want us to understand that the Mosaic Covenant, uh, I would argue, is still in effect. Not for us. It never was made with us in the first place. Very much in fact for the nation of Israel. They're still under the curses. They're, a lot of them are still out of the land, uh, even though they've been reconstituted as a nation in our day. Um, and they, part of the Mosaic Covenant is a future restoration which the New Covenant supplements. So <clears throat> keep that in mind. But still we should follow them. I mean, Jesus said the two greatest commandments, and he summarized the first four and the last six. Yes. And still, I mean, in order to be a moral person yep. that God wants us to be. That's right. If we do any of these other things, obviously we're immoral or not doing what God, what pleases God. So it's a good point. You know, even the Ten Commandments, uh, existed in the sense of morality that God built into man from the very beginning. What the Ten Commandments did was codify it. Um, doesn't mean that we break those things, but when I say we're not under the law, I mean as a system of life. We don't observe the festivals today. We don't bring sacrifices. We don't have priests. Uh, they had all of that as part of the Mosaic Covenant. So <clears throat> I've used this illustration before. You know, if you go to Canada, you're under the laws of Canada. And a lot of those are going to correspond with our laws. But you can't go to Canada and live according to our laws. There might be some things that would be against the law in Canada that are okay here. Well, in the case of the Mosaic Covenant, if you're going to be under the law, you've got to be under all of it. Uh, certainly there's things that match with what we're responsible for as far as loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a number of the Ten Commandments... I've always heard that all of them, except the Sabbath, are repeated in the New Testament. So it's not to say that there aren't correspondences. There's a lot of correspondences between what the church is and does as God's people in the present age and what Israel did in, in Old Testament times. But it is, a, it is two different things. We, we don't, we're not part of the Mosaic Covenant. The one party to all the covenants that God makes with Abraham and his descendants is Israel. That's very clear as you read through the Old Testament. So we weren't party initially. Uh, Acts 15 made it clear that those who embraced Israel's Messiah did not, did not have to keep the law. And we don't, we don't keep it as a way of life. We don't stay under the whole of Exodus 19-24 the way Israel was responsible to do. Um, I, I would just, and you know, I, I want to, I'm going to keep pounding on this, you know, the Mosaic Covenant is still in force because once we get to the Millennial Kingdom, all that stuff kicks back in. Israel's in the land. There is a temple. There are priests. There are sacrifices. Where does all that come from? 
comes from the law, the mosaic. How do Orthodox Jews today deal with all the things? Um, like so, the rabbis, or they can't make sacrifice. So how do they make that okay in their heads. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know. Israel can't keep the law today, basically, because there's no temple, and they've lost the priesthood. They still try to keep as much of it as they can so they can keep the dietary laws. They try to do as much as they can, but God has made it where they can no longer keep the law. And <clears throat> I guess that's all you can say is that they do it the best that they can. They're still looking for, not only for the coming of the Messiah, but the restoration of the nation. So an Orthodox Jew you know, who embraces all that the Old Testament teaches, doesn't believe that Jesus was that Messiah, and they're still looking for the restoration of the nation that the Old Testament prophets talk so much about. There are movements today in Israel to both to rebuild the temple and to get the necessary red heifer to make the appropriate sacrifice, but it's not happening in the present day. I understand they're recreating a lot of the tools also made out of gold and stuff. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I've got a book by a guy. I can't remember the author's name now. He talked. That's all. It, it deals with it very extensively. Is the the coming millennial temple, and it's described by Ezekiel, and all the things that are being done in Israel today to get ready for that. So they're very much uh, wanting it to happen. Uh, it won't happen until Christ comes back. That must be frustrating for them. Yeah, I. Is, it, is that why the Lord's allowed this to drive them to embracing Messiah? I think that's part of it. I mean, Paul talks in Romans about one that we in the church enjoy blessings that they should have had and will have eventually as a means of provoking them to jealousy. He also talks about the fact that they've been temporarily hardened so that they can't understand that Christ is the Messiah until the fullness of Gentiles comes into the church. That's but. A huge sadness. Think about it. I've got a lot of Jewish friends who you share with them, and it just can't break through. Yeah, but that I mean, that's true for everybody, right? It is true. It's just you, you think about their rich heritage, and it just somehow makes it sadder. It is sadder. I would say it's sadder because they've had so much revelation from God, and they believe the first two thirds of the Bible, but uh, until they recognize Messiah, they're going to be in darkness. And, I mean, there's still the hope that God will open the individual Jewish person's eyes to come into the church. But what we're talking about, too, is the, you know, basically the regeneration of the nation as a people that will take place at some point during the tribulation period. The restoration of the nation to the rabbis of today not believe that. I mean, they have, their, they have a country. They may not have, is it because they, they, believe, they don't believe that they have all the land that God originally promised them? I don't think they believe they have all of that, and they don't, they're certainly not living according to the conditions described by the prophets. They're, it's true that they're back in the land, uh, and they've been back in the land at different points in different ways through history, but you can hardly say that they're the head of the nations at this point. They're surrounded by their enemies. They're constantly under threat by them, and... Even though I think the Jewish people have been very ingenious as far as making the land productive, it's not as productive as it will be uh, when they embrace Messiah and the prophets are actually fulfilled. Okay. Any, no other questions? Uh, let's have a word of prayer.
will be dismissed. Father, it's incredible to, to read this account again, just to think back through all that you did, and tremendous displays of your power through the plagues, and then all that you did to bring Egypt through a very barren land, and yet to sustain her uh, as a million and a half, two million people through this land and, and down to Sinai, and then to enter into covenant with them, uh, despite their regular grumbling and lack of belief and even at Sinai their making of the golden calf you remain faithful to them you discipline them as they needed it uh, but you're also faithful to your promises originally sworn to Abraham Isaac and Jacob and it's just fascinating for us to read how you uh, were faithful to those promises it's just very revealing of your character in general we thank you that you remain faithful to us in the same kinds of ways. And we thank you that we have an intimate relationship with you through Jesus Christ and what he's done. We're also thankful that you've not forsaken your people, Israel, and that you will fulfill in the end all your covenant promises to them and all the different individual covenants. Thank you for again for the time we had in James this morning and just the clear message to us that Justification is by faith alone, but not a faith that's without works. You design those works, and they flow out of our faith. They're not meritorious towards justification, but they're a result of our belief in God and in Christ. So help us. Help us as we go through another week. Keep us faithful in the different places that you have us. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to demonstrate that through both love for our neighbor and obedience to your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.